We've seen during this pandemic with all that has happened, uh, we've seen a real emphasis and a real need um, to prioritize equity and to prioritize citizenship. Uh, so we're thinking not just about awarding degrees, not just about how we go about um, approaching teaching and learning, but also what are our greater, more noble commitments at this time um, to society? And those include equity and citizenship. Um, those are more important. Those two as core values to who we are and as practices, as guiding principles are more important now than ever. Hello. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious You, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. Welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education. And we have the privilege to speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome just such an inspiring leader, Dr. Eve Solomon Fernandez. President Solomon Fernandez currently serves as president of Greenfield Community College in Massachusetts, which is her third presidency. Her personal and professional background and experience are wide ranging, including having served with the United Nations in Mexico and as a consultant for the Bermuda Ministry of Education. She is a recognized thought leader writing and speaking on issues related to reinventing higher ed, rural innovation, equity and women's leadership. In 2018, Diverse Issues in Higher Ed named Eve as one of the top 25 women in higher education. She has served as a reviewer for the National Science Foundation and Johns Hopkins University Press, and I could go on and on. Now, because I know our listeners really want to hear from you, we will include your complete bio uh, in the show notes. But for now, I just want to welcome you, Eve, to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much, Melissa. I'm delighted to be here with you. And I understand that on your campus, you go by the title Prez Eve. Is it okay if I refer to you in that way during our conversation? Absolutely. I have a horribly long last name that is hyphenated, so it's easier for people to just say Prez Eve, and I love it. Okay, well, that's what I will do. I know the um, experience of having a long hyphenated last name. <laughs> so, I, so I resonate with that one. So we, I want to jump right in. We like to ask our guests to tell us something about their career trajectory. And in your case, you really have had an inspiring and a highly interesting career path. Can you tell us where your journey began and 
Uh, what drew you into higher education uh, as a career path on the front end? Gosh, I have to say it's a little bit of pragmatism and a little bit of incredible mentors. Uh, when I finished my PhDs, um, uh, my my coursework, I was trying to figure out what do I want to do. I'd had an awesome opportunity to work with Marilyn Cochran Smith over at Boston College on teacher education issues, and I really loved it. And at the same time, um, I had studied education statistics, psychometrics. Those were my areas of expertise and had an interest in policy. And an opportunity opened up at UMass Boston, which was my alma mater, still is my alma mater. And uh, I jumped right on it. And um, when I interviewed, they said, you know, your skill set isn't exactly one of curriculum and instruction. We think it's broader than that. It's hard to find people who do statistics and who actually enjoy that work. And we're looking for a director of planning and assessment. We've not posted that job yet. Is this something that would interest you? If so, we would like to withdraw your name from the search. And if you want to apply, you can certainly do that. And it was an opportunity that I thought about and uh, talked to some of my mentors. They said, yes, this is perfect, much better. And so that's how I started um, in higher ed. I did do a little bit of consulting while I was a grad student. Um, and again, it's one of those opportunities in one of those fields where there are so few people who do statistics and so few women and women of color. Um, so it certainly gave me an edge, the lived experiences, the perspectives that I brought and the broad academic background that I have. I started as, as an undergrad in political science and international relations, moved on to a master's degree in economics, and then ultimately in getting my PhD in statistics in educational uh, research and evaluation. So it's sort of an amalgam, but it works. I am in some ways a jack of all trades with uh, uh, broad curiosities around a lot of disciplines and a lot of different phenomena. So uh, it worked. I went from there, from UMass Boston, into community colleges at Mass Bay. Love that. Again, I was in the field of institutional research, planning and assessment, continuing there all the way up um, to the top of the hierarchy. And uh, I just really, I love my job. Uh, it's not so much a title for me. It's more about doing good work that is transformative, that is opening doors to students like me who wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to go to college and who never thought of being a college president or having one of those jobs that we watch other people have and we see people in television having. So um, that's, that's my journey in higher ed. Mm, and it really is unique. I don't know many. In fact, I can't off the top of my head think of any <laughs> college presidents who came up and started in the uh, IR data area and what an advantage that gives you, uh, you know, now that we in higher ed, we're, we're really data is everything. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely so. a statistical anomaly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I bet you keep folks on your campus on their toes, too. <laughs> you, you know, you know how to look and what to look for in the data. So um, tell us a little bit more about why uh, you now Greenfield's not your first presidency. So what is it about Greenfield Community College that attracted you at this point in your career? You know, I think it was a marriage made in heaven. Um, so Greenfield serves a primarily a rural community. Um, and we have folks in the valley. We also have the hill towns. And for me, I really like rural communities. And my first taste of rural was when I was president of Cumberland County College in New Jersey. And I felt so at home there. And I realized 
it was because I come from a family of farmers. On my dad's side, they were goat and plantain farmers. And, you know, you sort of never waited for other people to do things for you. You roll up your sleeves, whatever the challenges are, you just um, get it done. And that work ethic, that sense of innovation, pragmatism, collaboration, because if we're not there for each other, uh, how are we to survive together? How are our communities to thrive if we're not working collaboratively together? So for me, the appeal of Greenfield was that it was rural and also the college is very progressive. So Greenfield had the very first uh, alternative energy program and the only sustainable agriculture program in the state. And so those things aligned very well with my values. So on paper, Greenfield looked great. I knew that it had a great reputation having worked in the state before. And then I just fell in love when I came for my campus visit. Um, I found that the faculty and staff were very much like like me and I love what they were doing and I thought it would be a great challenge as well as a great joy to work on that campus and to work with some brilliant people who are just as passionate about social justice, about environmental justice and I don't know. It was there was a there was a magnet there that just attracted me um, to the campus, and they clearly felt the same way. So it's been a great experience. Um, I love the faculty and staff with whom I'm able to create some good trouble with every day, and we have a very supportive community and a wonderful board. I mean, what more can I possibly ask for, other than a great place to raise a family, and that it certainly is. So very lucky. Well, and they're lucky to have you, obviously. You. I, you know, you speak to something that is so critical in our doctoral program in higher education at Baypath. We talk, we have, we have many students who aspire to presidencies someday. And one of the things that we, we talk with them about is the importance of finding that place of fit mm -hmm. and that that fit has to be holistic. And your, what you have just said beautifully illustrates, uh, illustrates that, uh, in terms of, of of your feeling like you are where you belong, absolutely. Uh, in your role, yeah. Now, like everyone else in higher ed, I know that your institution has had to pivot in response to the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about what the experience has been like on your campus and what you've learned that you're going to carry forward from that from the experience? And we hope we really hope now we're on the you know that the end uh, the end is in sight. Yes, yes. I would say, well, at the beginning, it was abrupt, like all of us. Um, for, for all of us, it was very abrupt. And we were trying to sort things out. And we were very fortunate that we were in the midst of strategic planning. And our IT department was one of the um, groups and one of the departments that was um, most further along in their planning. So we could see what was happening and being in the Valley, I think we're also very lucky because we had a number of the private colleges and universities that were already beginning to say, you know what, this is not looking great. So when we started doing the purchases for technology, buying laptops, buying Chromebooks, buying um, lab kits and buying other supplies uh, for our faculty and staff and our students to be able to uh, learn and teach and work remotely, we didn't encounter a lot of the um, supply chain um, uh, bottlenecks that folks encountered. So we were able, as difficult as it was and as abrupt as it was, we were able to obtain the technology that we needed um, 
with relative ease, as we um, saw how our other colleagues um, from sister institutions um, dealt with the um, uh, uh, the challenges of looking for those things later on. So that was very abrupt. Um, one of the things that I would say characteristics about uh, GCC that I really admire is that um, we really reflect a lot. We really reflect a lot. We do a lot of postmortems. What worked well? What didn't work well? Why was this the best time for the for this intervention? Um, and of course, this was a forced intervention. And were the conditions right for us to succeed? Those are generally um, some of our guiding questions. So by the time we got to the end of the spring semester, we began planning um, for what the fall would look like and putting a lot into professional development um, for both our students and our staff, our faculty and our staff, and really having um, the number one criterion be student success and adding on uh, the criterion of public health um, as this was the crisis um, to which we were responding. Uh, so having those two criteria, public health and student success, um, meant that every decision that we made, um, we had those as our bullseye. So um, this semester, in fact, just on Monday, we finished doing our look back, how did the fall work out? Because we know it was markedly better than the spring semester and even in the summer semester, uh, the summer um, intercession. So uh, we've learned a lot. Um, there are a lot of emerging and promising practices that we will continue to move forward with. And at the same time, we have to say to ourselves, just because this innovation worked during the pandemic, doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be one that we move forward. Um, it can be a crisis-oriented innovation that in times of crisis we use, and there are also other practices that can be long-term practices uh, while at the same time staying true to our, um, to our uh, uh, strategic plan. So I would say that it's forced us to be much more ambidextrous than we would have been otherwise. So looking back, looking forward, what got us to be successful um, and what will help us to be successful in the future. Times of change are changing. The pandemic certainly has changed um, businesses. We expect to see much more automation um, uh, going forward, much more reliance on machine learning going forward. But we also know that the future is very much human. We create those machines. We create those processes. We create those efficiencies. Um, and also... Uh, uh, we've seen during this pandemic with all that has happened, uh, we've seen a real emphasis and a real need um, to prioritize equity and to prioritize citizenship. Uh, so we're thinking not just about awarding degrees, not just about how we go about um, approaching teaching and learning, but also what are our greater, more noble commitments at this time um, to society? And those include equity and citizenship. Um, those are more important. Those two as core values to who we are and as practices, as guiding principles are more important now than ever. Mm, well, and I know so much of your work has indeed focused, not just now, but uh, over uh, across your career has focused on supporting equity and inclusion as well as gender issues. Mm -hmm. So can you speak a little bit more about how that is playing out in your current role as president? Uh, 
Yeah. Do you have some specific examples? Yeah, yeah. So um, I know we were talking a little bit before about my recent writings around democracy and citizenship. Um, and I'm originally from Haiti. I came to the U.S. when I was 12. And I grew up in a country that was very politically unstable, where we had coup d'etat after coup d'etat um, when I was a child, a lot of political violence. And I saw what it's like to be, uh, to live in a, in a democracy that wasn't quite a democracy in practice. And so some of the things that have been happening uh, most recently have really spoken to the core of uh, who I am. And, but, it's, but, but they are also not new because I grew up with those values. But one of the things, so some of what we are seeing right now and for me as a leader is a need for me to be even bolder, even more audacious in how we approach the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also defining those in broad terms, um, not just in terms of race and ethnicity, but also in terms of rural, um, because some of what we are seeing right now is um, alienation of poor, rural, and primarily white communities. Um, and we're also seeing the ways that our strong legacy and our history and our contemporary practices that are fueling um, structural racism and inequities are now coming to bite us. And as our country is becoming more plural, um, we will have these tensions remain and they might manifest themselves in very violent ways if we're not um, bold enough, courageous enough to tackle them and to also provide people with opportunities, with education to be able to change their plight. I think when people feel that they have no hope um, they are willing to destroy um, things. They are willing to, to do things that they would normally do if they had a sense um, of hope about their future. Um, and as you know, I'm very committed to women's issues, girls' issues. Um, those are very near and dear to my heart. Um, I have the blog um, through the University of Venus, working with Mary Churchill and um, Inside Higher Ed that I maintain, I've maintained for, gosh, I guess, um, seven, eight years now. Um, and I talk about what it's like to be a woman leader, leader, what it's like to be a black woman leader, an immigrant leader, and a mom. Um, things are hard. You know, we try to have it all. We can't always have it all. And we see biases. We see ways that we can show up that are permitted and ways that we can show up that are also um, not accepted. So uh, it, it's it's becoming more complex and being um, at the intersection of multiple um, uh, identities um, certainly make things more complex um, and uh, calls for us to be more understanding, more empathetic, and certainly for me um, to be um, more vulnerable because I know the people who are um, supporting me and whose work I support and whom I support um, need to know what it's like for real and not just a textbook um, version of leadership. Yeah, well, I want to commend you for your authenticity. Um, it, you know, that what you are describing in terms of uh, leadership and and being that kind of a role model, I don't need to tell you it's needed now more than ever. Um, and so, I will make sure we include a link to that um, to that blog oh. that you just talked about in the show notes. Um, I I have read some Thank of your you. um, articles there, and they are. They are very compelling. So now you also 
um, you write for a lot of different places. You, you, you also recently wrote a blog article for Inside mm-hmm. Higher Ed that uh, has gotten a lot of press. Um, the title is What Community Colleges Need mm-hmm. Right Now. Uh, can you tell us what the inspiration is for <laughs> this article? And, and then maybe walk us through, I know we don't have the time to go through Single every yeah. uh, issue that you raised. But maybe some of the issues that you think are particularly compelling that you highlight. in the Well, article. you know, it all goes back to my sister, Mary Churchill. Um, so we have a couple of groups that we're a part of. We have a 5 a.m. writing group and we also have um, our standing meeting at seven o'clock on Friday mornings. And I was talking to her about um, my NECHI, um, our accreditation presentation and a faux pas that I made. And she said, Eve, you know what? You need to write down what those 10 things are that you really see are really crucial right now. And um, I said, I don't know that people will want to read 10, but I certainly can identify the most salient ones. And, and you know, I did end up with 10. So one of the things that I said is fixing faculty salaries. Um, community colleges, you know, our faculty are teaching a 5-5 teaching load. How do you have time to advise if you're teaching five classes every semester? And we know that other institutions understand how hard it is to teach, that they have 2-2 loads or 3-3 loads. So we need to look at um, those things because I think it's particularly hard for community college um, faculty because they have students with varied academic preparedness level. So you have the students who were the straight A's, the AP, the honors courses. And then you also have students who haven't been in school in 20 years, in 15 years, who can't remember this stuff. So it's hard. They have a pretty wide range and their semester is the same. And those students, um, they come with a great deal of capital, but it's not always the level of capital or the kinds of capital, academic capital that helps them succeed. So our faculty are doing a lot more work in the community college sector, and they need more support and they need to be compensated fairly. Um, we have the issue of childcare barrier. Well, we look at the pandemic and even before the pandemic, we knew that childcare was a significant barrier for women who wanted to get themselves back on their feet or were for the first time exploring going into the job market. Um, this pandemic has highlighted to us uh, the importance of not paying, what happens when you don't pay attention to child care. It's been, you know, the folks who've been most affected by this pandemic have been people of color, women and people over 50. So let's get rid of child care as a barrier. Let's make sure that we address this issue of gender equity and economic justice by ensuring that each community college has a child care facility on campus. We also know that students, um, are, have transportation issues, especially in rural areas, and they can't afford childcare. Childcare is so expensive. I remember paying $1,800 a month to have my kids um, uh, uh, watched over and learn in school. So um, that's a real issue. Um, I think also when we look at the college going rate, rate of rural populations, we just talked about that. Um, that is uh, an opportunity gap. And we know from the empirical evidence that rural youth, they do as well or better in a lot of cases on the metrics in K-12, um, in the K-12 arena. So why are they not represented in the same proportions um, in higher education? We need to fix that. 
um, helping our students develop social capital through experiential learning is one of the other points that I brought up in that article. Um, I also talked about financial aid for competency-based education. Now, this is a really, really big one um, that really interests me because we saw the federal government have a pilot for financial aid um, with respect to financial aid for um, competency-based learning and that lasted just a few years with a handful of institutions participating and then it ended. Um, so there's a real opportunity for us here and for the Biden administration uh, to do well by our students and also by our businesses as the future of work is changing. Um, I talk also in the article it's a very brief article about cultural dexterity training as we're becoming more plural um, and also college completion rates for Black and Latinx men in particular. Um, and uh, we talk about diversifying the faculty and administrative pipeline. Our students need to see role models and we also need the lived perspectives of people who are diverse. We're still very white in the academy. So what are we going to do to change that as our students are becoming increasingly more diverse and our country is becoming plural? Um, so I talk about professional development and um, cultivating innovation. As you know, it's I, I can't um, stop carrying the mental for for innovation. And at the same time, as I said before, that MB dexterity, looking back and looking forward. Innovation doesn't mean that we um, throw the baby out with the bathwater and abandon our traditions. Our traditions, many of them have served us well, but um, we're now in 2021 and we need to evolve. So those were the main points that I brought up and thank you for um, highlighting that article. You have the experience, you've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind, with Baypath University, our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. described by others who have worked with you as a transformational and also a, a very positive leader. 
And so I'm wondering if you could speak to those influences that most shaped your development as a leader. And, you know, when things get tough and there's so much pressure to hunker down, which, you know, we're all dealing with right now, what keeps you going? How, where, how, where do you find the courage to stay positive? Oh, thank you. Um, I would have to say there is the immigrant ethic in me. So um, you see things in terms of, in, in, in terms of opportunities. So, um, you know, and I do get down. So let's just be very honest. Um, I'm not um, always up and always with a ton of energy. And I think self-care is very important. And one thing that we don't talk enough about and, and leaders it's shunned upon, depending on your generation to talk about is, um, is getting help, you know? So um, I do have a therapist, someone I talk to on a regular basis um, because my friends get bored. They get tired of hearing my complaints and my husband gets tired of living with me talking about things, the same, you know, horrible things all the time. Um, and so when we need help, I think as leaders, it's very important to say, I need help and I know that I can get help and living in an industrialized country, living in the United States of America, however flawed our healthcare system may be, we can still get help when we need it. So I do get ample help. And I think that's part of what keeps me positive. And, and people want that from their leaders. Um, so I see things, I think it's just, I don't know, I was born an optimist. And when I think of the um, alternatives also coming from the poorest country in the Western hemisphere, I think, you know, as bad as things are, we have our sense of agency, we have autonomy, we have opportunities. How do we turn these um, difficulties? How do we turn these adversities into opportunities? And, um, and right now I'm going through it right now. I, I, I have I have a particular um, struggle that I'm going through and I've just decided that, you know, I'm going to make lemon out of lem make lemonade out of lemon, look at this differently. And I recently um, discovered Taoism and I found it I find it very helpful to center me, to ground me. And I'm not religious, um, not religious, but there is something about the pragmatic um, and uh, approach and the the kindness and the love and the forgiveness, um, the positivity that is in that writing. And I, I carry a couple of, you know, very small books and one of them is just, you know, slightly um, bigger than a matchbox, um, but it has everything that I need. Um, so whenever I feel like I'm sort of starting to go awry a little bit, getting off the, the, the train tracks, um, it's good to do a little bit of reading and to realize that the sun is out and um, it's a beautiful day. We have clean air to breathe and focusing on what we have, what I do have, and being grateful for that um, than focusing on what I don't have. And at the same time, advocating for equality, equity, and to make the things that aren't right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, well, you you have mentioned that you are a wife, a mother. We know that you are a very, very busy professional. Um, you know, another question I would imagine listeners have, particularly our women listeners, and we have more. We have, I think, sixty percent of our audience is women. Um, I'm sure they'd be interested in knowing your thoughts about how you balance everything, and any insight you might have for other women who are interested in pursuing a significant leadership role, whether it's in higher ed or- Well, I have to say um, that there too, I'm a statistical anomaly. I have an incredibly supportive husband. I married Superman. 
um, who allows me to do things and to shift responsibilities to him that traditionally um, the woman has. So, um, you know, he's followed my career wherever we've gone um, and uh, has been the primary parent in charge for the longest time. And I'm very, I'm, I'm very lucky to have that. And in addition to my partner, um, I also have a very good circle of friends, um, people on whom I can rely, people when they don't hear from me for you know an extended period of time will just show up to my house and say, where are you? You haven't replied to my text, you haven't replied to my calls. Um, it's important to have sister circles. Um, those are incredibly important and to have mentors, people on whom we can rely for advice and counsel, um, and I have to say that I recently started uh, working with um, Coach Katie Linder. Um, Katie is absolutely wonderful. I, I've always had coaches. I have um, right now. I have two coaches. Um, I have one who is my longtime coach, who is a Google executive, um, who does coaching part time with the people he wants, and I'm one of his handpicked people. Um, we've become very much like friends, and he helps me think through things differently. And Katie just helps keep me on track. Um, she offers a number of different services through her platform and she has communities um, of other leaders, men and women, primarily women who help each other out. Um, and, but I found that um, having my conversations with her and getting emails from her saying, where are you? What are you doing? What are your goals? You said you were going to do this. Where are you now? I haven't heard from you. We need to meet. And she also has some electronic tools to help us um, meet our goals, to help me meet up, meet my goals. So she's very helpful. And I will also say that, ah, I've had this problem since I was 15. I actually don't sleep. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I have a body clock that wakes up at three o'clock every morning, no matter where I am, which time zone I am, Eastern time, 3 a.m., you will find me up. Um, so I, I get up and that's when I do most of my writing first thing in the morning. That's when I do emails. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've also been known to go to sleep at six or seven o'clock at night. Once I'm done with my last zoom, Oh my goodness, zoom. Oh, it's not, don't even get me started mix. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Changing the subject. Yeah, Where would you like to go, Melissa? I can ramble on forever. Wow. Well, I'm just, yeah, no, no, no. This was, I, I. I, um, there, there's so much wrapped up into that, what you just responded. So, um, and, and again, thank you for your, your honesty, uh, here, because I think that's really helpful, particularly for women to, to hear you say that, you know, mm -hmm. you don't, you don't have to go it alone. You know, the world mm -hmm. doesn't have to be just on your shoulders. Um, and the importance of marrying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, um, you know, is, uh, oh my is God! That's the most important, important decision uh, you're going to make in your life, especially if you want to have children. Your life's partner. Yeah, and time puts up with me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So now you've recently completed. I'm in uh, my third academic years, year. Right? Correct. You're, you're in your third year. Yeah, as president. Uh, and so, as you look back, what are you most pleased about? Are there some benchmarks that you can point to and say, wow, you know, I feel really good that we, I would say I've survived each of the last, 
years, last two years. I mean, it, we just, we've, we've done a lot. We've done a lot. And I think, you know, I came into a wonderful culture that Bob Pura and the rest of my colleagues, faculty and staff had created um, that also needed to evolve, right? The times were different. Um, 20 years ago, the world was very different from what it is now and what it is that's, you know, and where it is going. Um, and as you can see, I'm a ball full of energy. Um, so it took people a little bit of time to get adjusted to it. But I think at the end of the day, and also for me, it took me a little bit of time to get adjusted to the slower pace. Um, even though I realized that, um, you know, for someone who doesn't sleep, uh, it's just, I'm always going, going, going. And I need to to constantly remind myself that we are a smaller school with fewer people. And while we all want to achieve the goals that we've outlined for ourselves, there are fewer of us getting the work done. And so it's going to take a little bit of time to get to where we want to be. Um, we are closing in on our strategic plan. That is a major accomplishment for us. Um, our level of student engagement, I think, is a major achievement. We are moving toward being much more multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary. Um, we've forged a number of partnerships with local organizations. I'm very, very proud of that. Um, we've been on the resiliency bandwagon um, for two years. And had we not been as, um, as strategic in saving and in our investments, we would not have um, survived and thrived during this pandemic as we have. Um, so I'm very, very proud of that, that we were able to increase our reserves um, with an eye towards investing in ourselves and investing in our systems. As I said before, the future is human. And so what we wanted to do is to invest in professional development, invest in IT so that the things that can be done through automation are done through automation and we leave time and we invest in doing the things that are uniquely human. Our students right now, our students today, to be able to survive, to be able to thrive and to be able to succeed, they need more human interaction. They need advisors. They need people who can do those functions that only a human can do and can do well. Um, so having that mindset and also preparing for all kinds of um, disasters that might come. Certainly, um, global pandemic was not on our list of disasters. But, you know, we did think that there could be um, that there could be a climate um, uh, uh, disasters, climate related disaster. Uh, we have had tornadoes. We have had um, other disasters. And as and, and, and as our um, uh, uh, climate change um, problems are hopefully um, will be getting better, but but the trajectory in which they were in prior to the pandemic, things were getting worse. We anticipated that we could have some sort of serious regional disruption that would hurt the college. So planning for those things, I think um, we've been much more planful and I'm very proud of the outcomes that we have reached um, as a result of our planfulness. Um, and also uh, the opportunities that we have created for students with support from our local businesses, our local philanthropists, to be able to provide more experiential learning opportunities for students. Um, those are some of the things that uh, I'm very proud of and I'm certain the team is very proud of as well. Well, in addition to everything else, you're also a futurist. Your, your foresight uh, skills, uh, you and your team are quite remarkable in terms of what you saw and began to plan for. 
um, prior to the pandemic. And it sounds like that has served, served you and the institution very, very well. We got smart people. Um, as a result. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no. And, and, and you're doing really good work. So um, let me end uh, with a signature question that we ask of every guest who comes on in Genius. And you have, you have hinted at this, particularly in terms of um, the response you just gave. But I, I want to ask you to kind of step to the balcony and uh, look out five, 10 years maybe in terms of the higher ed community, uh, let's say in the mm -hmm. United States more broadly. Uh, what, what do you see coming that you think should be, needs to be on all of our radar um, and uh, that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, hold on a second. Let me grab my crystal ball, um, just a minute. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, what I'm going to say is nothing earth shattering. Um, uh, I, I do think that we have, um, we need to be very concerned about equity about higher ed becoming an even stronger vehicle for socioeconomic mobility um, in the region where we are and in the and in higher ed specifically. I think what we are seeing right now with the um, marginalization of poor white and very much rural communities, but the poor whites, what we're seeing with the poor people of color, what we're seeing with income inequality, um, are social issues that need to be addressed using a multi-pronged approach. So unless higher ed um, becomes a partner in helping address these issues, and unless our policymakers are also engaged in prioritizing this as an issue, it's going to be um, a problem. We need to depoliticize higher education so that we don't have Republicans who think it's all um, horse manure, right? And we need to, and, and Democrats who are having an elitist approach generally, or at least criticized for doing so. Um, so I think we need to understand that the future of work in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution is one where every person virtually needs a post-secondary credential. And people who don't have that are left behind, even if they are able to find opportunities after high school. Um, in the long run, they will find that there are limitations to their careers. Um, I think in the theme of resiliency, we need to continue to build our financial, IT, human, and institutional um, resiliency. This is going to be a difficult decade for higher ed for most of the country, um, save for the Southwest and the West. Um, but we've already seen that um, changes in uh, uh, changes in policy, changes in immigration policy can affect that pretty significantly. Um, the Northeast is going to be most adversely impacted. So thinking differently around how do we organize ourselves, what kind of partnerships that do we want? We are going to see more mergers and um, uh, acquisitions and, 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 and other um, arrangements um, multiple permutations of those things. And I think as leaders, we have a responsibility to think, okay, all right, what kinds of premier partnerships might benefit our communities and our students and our businesses um, because higher education, a post-secondary secondary credential is really critical. Um, I think we also need to keep a watchful eye on how um, employers are adapting and how jobs are changing. Um, the, the future of higher ed is not one in which you get your degree and you're done. I think we need to be prepared, and I'll end on this note, um, to support 
educate, re-educate um, learners who already have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees already in the market and need to um, come back and acquire additional um, credential to continue to be relevant and competitive in the workforce. So focusing on adult learners, as I I know that you have done, Melissa, um, and uh, BayPath has such a wonderful reputation in doing that, um, we need to focus more on that. So looking at a future that is human, um, how do we empower our humans to be successful and to be able to contribute to our democracy, to the economic well-being and the intellectual vitality of our regions and our country. That is indeed a very good and compelling note to end on. So, Prez Eve, uh, let me thank you once again for your time, for your willingness to share your insights and for uh, the work that you are doing, uh, not only in your local community, but on behalf of the higher ed community most broadly. You are an inspiration to many, and uh, I encourage you to keep going, <laughs> writing, um, get some sleep as you can. My pleasure. Thank, thank you, you, Melissa. Thank you for Take being care. with us today. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of CHELUP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash CHELUP for information about our professional development opportunities for higher ed professionals, including our blog, and our free Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please be sure to review and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And do share Ingenious You with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. Earlier this year, the University of Florida announced a 70 million public-private artificial intelligence partnership with NVIDIA Corporation with the goal of catapulting UF's research strength to address some of the world's most formidable challenges, including creating access to artificial intelligence training and tools for underrepresented communities and building momentum for transforming the future of the workforce. In his capacity as Associate Provost, Dr. David Reed found himself squarely in the middle of this game-changing initiative. In next week's episode, we talk with Dr. Reed about how the partnership is going and hear why he and his colleagues are so enthusiastic about the power of AI to transform education. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you do not miss out on this and future episodes. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.